My name is Dr. Joanna Pagonis, and welcome to Tackle Tuesday. Tackle Tuesday is a podcast series that tackles different issues in the workplace. We explore topics such as leading with emotion, diversity and inclusion, and how to create resilient and agile work cultures. Today's episode is sponsored by Synogap Solutions. We work closely with emerging leaders to help you develop a clear vision of your authentic self and to discover your passion and how it aligns with your purpose. Once you have a clear understanding of your purpose and vision for your future, you'll be able to discover your path for continuous growth along with the energy and enthusiasm necessary to sustain you during the most challenging moments in your life. We encourage you to visit our website at SinogapSolutions.com and explore the courses we offer that will help you develop the mindset and capabilities to be an inspirational leader. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Tackle Tuesday. In this month's episode, we will explore part two of how to connect with others. And specifically, we're going to talk about psychological safety and the differences between diversity hiring and diversity hire. So last episode, if you tuned in, you'll remember that we talked about the importance of creating inclusive and diverse workspaces uh, and unbiasing our biases. So we discussed the need to recognize the layers of our own identity and the frame of reference we operate within. So I also presented the example of affirmative action in the States, uh, which is the practice of including particular groups where they may be underrepresented. So for example, many universities in the States used race as a factor when deciding which students to admit. Uh, and some of the arguments, which is right now at the Supreme Court level, presented sides, one being that these practices are valuable and necessary as a side door to provide a different entrance to those who otherwise wouldn't have access to higher education in this case, whereas the other side sees diversity as mushy, hard to define and measure, a bit intangible. So I just wanted to circle back and acknowledge while our podcast, Tackle Tuesday, focuses on issues in the workplace, we felt the affirmative action in university admissions uh, presented a timely, a current, a, a relevant issue for us to look at that displays a lot of the complexities surrounding uh, inclusion and diversity. So today, Joanna and I are excited to explore some of these topics, some of these themes as it relates to recruitment, hiring, uh, and workplace culture that fosters inclusion beyond the recruitment process. So we think that last episode, if you haven't listened, go tune in as it sets up what we're going to dive into today. So with Mm -hmm. that, I'll turn it over to Joanna to kick things off. Yeah, thanks, Katie. So let's start off by exploring psychological safety. Professor Amy Edmondson, she's a professor of leadership and management at Harvard Business School, and she defines psychological safety as a belief that no one will be punished or humiliated for speaking up with ideas, questions, concerns, or mistakes, and that the team is safe for interpersonal risk-taking. She says to think of it as permission for candor. Candor can be defined as the quality of being open and honest in expression, can also be referred to as frankness or being frank. And so in earlier episodes, we introduced the concept of safe spaces versus brave spaces. And we noted that safe spaces are often conflated with comfort. And we presented a need for brave spaces that might sometimes not feel very comfortable. So with that said, psychological safety isn't about being comfortable all the time. It's about embracing the discomfort. So foundation of psychological safety, especially in our workplaces, is important so that people know they can 
make mistakes, and recover from them, which leads us to our first reflection question. All right. So, can we imagine brave spaces that have a foundation of psychological safety? What would that look like, feel like? So, to break this down further, we have some questions to reflect upon that will help to measure your team's level of psychological safety. So I I did say we have our first reflection question. In in actuality, we have a total of four. (laughs) Uh, So as I read each one, we encourage you to reflect on them as they apply to the people and teams that you work with. So the first question is, if you make a mistake on this team, it's often held against you. How strongly do you agree or disagree with that first statement? Our second question or statement, I should say, is members of this team are able to bring up problems and tough issues. Once again, how strongly do you agree or disagree with that statement? No one on this team would deliberately act in a way that undermines my efforts. And the last one is, within my team, my unique skills and talents are valued and utilized. So as you reflected on how much you agree or disagree with each of those statements, what insight does this provide regarding the level of psychological safety on your team? Katie, how can you then build psychological safety at your workplace? Great. Thanks, Joanna. I, uh, I like those questions just to get us thinking about what this concept of psychological safety can actually look like. And I think those those give good insight. So next, I'll talk just briefly about uh, a bit of what the research says regarding how to build psychological safety at work. And we decided to share this because it can sound simple to do things that foster psychological safety. But I know even from my own experience, especially I can think back to the last few years when stepping in as a new manager to lead a brand new team of people who didn't know me, Uh, I underestimated the time it took to develop this idea of psychological safety, especially because I'd say I'm someone who values this this idea of psychological safety. I know I've done it with other teams or even coming in with new people. I, I would share with them that I do value this, but it still takes time. So I'll go through just a couple of actions here that that can really help to foster that. So the first one, based on some of the research, is to give people freedom to take risks and make mistakes. So thinking of the various ways that this can be done. Uh, And to build on that, there's some research that says CEOs, in particular, based off uh, this study, who seek feedback more often had higher psychological safety within their organizations. And this is when employees were were assessed and and measured this. So in terms of a a specific way to do this, uh, consider instead of just asking for feedback, it's actually found leaders who criticize themselves out loud in front of people fostered safety a bit more effectively. And so this demonstrates that leaders, when they put out there uh, some personal feedback, that they can take the criticism uh, while creating mutuality and 
normalizes vulnerability and enhances accountability. So think of rather than saying, you know, hey, team, what can I do better? Or my door is always open if you have feedback. I I really want to hear it. It might be more helpful to start off. So imagine, for example, at a team meeting, if I came in to my my team and said, hey, you know, I'm trying to to work on a few things. I notice that I get really excited with lots of big ideas. And I notice that this can be overwhelming and might make it hard for us to keep tasks and projects in scope. So I'm hoping to keep checking in with you uh, to continue to get some feedback around this. So that's a personal example of something that I know I, I struggle with, uh, with getting excited with all the ideas. And so sharing this with my team and really encouraging uh, ongoing feedback around a particular topic might open that door a bit more easily. So I want to pause there and maybe check in, Joanna. What do you think of this, this tactic of, of, of leaders or managers or people putting some of that criticism or feedback out there first? Yeah, I think it's actually a very, very simple, but yet very powerful way that we can encourage people to give us feedback. Because honestly, it's even when I reflect on myself to give my boss feedback, it's not always easy to do. And sometimes I just choose not to do it because of the discomfort that it may cause me to have that kind of a conversation with my boss. So if my boss was a bit more open to and saying things like this in meetings, it would make me feel a lot safer Mm -hmm. to come forward. But, you know, I think about the clients that we work with, especially in law enforcement, and for them, credibility comes with experience and having Having the answers to or the solutions to all the problems and kind of just leading leading first, right? Not leading through vulnerability or servant leadership approach, just kind of like, listen to me, I'll tell you what to do. So this is very simple and I think easy enough to just test it out and try it out and just see what mm-hmm. happens mm-hmm. without posing too much risk to self. And so yeah. the challenge to them is to actually try it and see what good can come from it. Because getting feedback like that's the feedback that I hear is like the the leaders that people do not like that do not they don't want to follow them are the ones that lead in a very authoritarian way and are not open to feedback. Mm-hmm. But yet those same people who say that to me are very reluctant to get feedback. And I'm like, if you think it's so critically important for a leader to get feedback, then why are you yourself reluctant or prevent doing what you need to do to get it? And so I think this is a way that they can do that. And I encourage people to reflect on, think about how they can do that. Even if you're not a leader, even if mm-hmm. you're a team member, what can you do to, or say to let people know, like, it's okay for them to approach you and share their thoughts with you? Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree. And I think it really does. It sets the stage and sort of sets an expectation and really demonstrates and illustrates that vulnerability. So uh, I'll just lastly share, I know something I've brought to you, Joanna, since we've started working together and I've done this with previous teams, but uh, a monthly feedback. So again, I think it's fine to say and to mean it of like, hey, I really value feedback. Joanna, please give me feedback anytime. Um, But you get busy. Those can sometimes be uncomfortable conversations. And it's just so easy to deprioritize those or, or wait till the annual review when it's this big kind of scary nebulous thing. So I force in our calendar, as I have with other teams, a monthly in place of our usual check-in. It's just a bit longer and it's a chance for us with a few guiding questions, a, a bit of a template for us to check in and give two-way feedback. So I know when I started doing this with direct reports years ago, the initial like what you want me to give you feedback was was 
uncomfortable for people. But by planting that seed and then doing what I just shared of giving the example of something I'm already working on really over time paid off in in both having time for the feedback, but also having really meaningful conversations that weren't big and scary. They were kind of normal. So um, not to toot my own horn because I have brought that to us, but I, I have just found it uh, added quite a bit of value over the years for me. No, I'm so happy that you did because I questioned myself, am I doing a good job? Am I supporting them? Do they feel safe to, to talk to me openly and honestly? And having those in place remind me or confirm for me, yeah, we're on the right track because that's the time that you can give me that feedback. So I know that I'm not way off track or heading in a mm-hmm. direction that's not conducive to creating that safety within the team. So having those monthly check-ins is a good opportunity for me to make sure that I'm doing a good job. Let's start trying to remember remind leaders, you exist for the people that follow you. They don't exist to serve you. <laughs> you may mm-hmm. want to believe that and you may act like that, but you're not going to have people that are, choos- are choosing to follow you. They only follow you because they have no choice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And oh, somebody said this to me and I loved it. People vote with their feet. So if they don't like you, they don't like the work that's happening within the team, they don't like the level of safety that exists, they'll let you know with their feet. They'll leave the team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's so true. Yeah, I haven't really heard that depicted that way, but completely makes sense. Um, yeah, no, thanks for that. And so I think, or I hope that this gave some examples of how psychological safety can be fostered. It takes some intentionality. It can't just happen, even if it's declared or, or stated as a value. So uh, keep this in mind. Uh, and we're going to, again, keep this in mind, but shift gears to focus on recruitment and how to apply some of this even further throughout hiring or onboarding or or fostering uh a team dynamic. So I'll pass it over to Joanna. All right. So there's a great article called, and we'll put this link to in our show notes so you can access it. It's called the difference between diversity hiring and a diversity hire. So this article delves into the difference between diversity hiring and a diversity hire and how to correct for bias in the recruitment process and ways to build an inclusive and welcoming workforce. So with that being said, Katie, what comes to mind when you hear the term diversity hiring versus diversity hire? I mean, when I first saw the headline of that article, I kind of thought, like, I knew they were different, but I kind of thought it was some of the same. Uh, And I was trying to parse out sort of the pros and cons of each just even by hearing those terms. So, uh, I mean, diversity hiring implies a process. So I could think of different techniques or approaches or a process even after like an interview. So sort of encompassing all of that process to be inclusive and I guess aware of bias. So that's some of what I thought. Diversity hire, I saw both good and bad of that, or or at least when I saw the term to think of, yeah, having inclusive diverse hires on a team can be positive, but to sort of tokenize someone by being the diversity hire has a completely different sort of feel to it and would have a very different experience. So those are some of my first thoughts, but I'll pause there because I've also read the article. So I don't want to give away too much to the points we're going to get to. What are what are some of your thoughts, Joanna, when I first shared this with you? Well, yeah, like the diversity hire is like a check the box initiative and can create a glass cliff experience for whoever is being hired 
to fill that quota, really. And I think about when the Black Lives Movement really took a strong hold on bringing and shedding light into what was happening, especially in the States. When George Floyd was killed, a lot of organizations, I felt like, we're like, okay, let's let's show and demonstrate that we're doing our part and engaged in a process of diversity hires. And they didn't have a diverse and equity diversity inclusion section or unit. They created one, hired one person, which was usually a visible minority or somebody from an underrepresented group put them into the position and said, make us diverse. And I feel like, you know, when you hire in that way, it's really done with the wrong intentions and sets people up to fail. Although it may seem like a really good opportunity, if the culture isn't there to support the person uh, and, and, and help remove barriers to help them succeed or truly give them access to the resources that they need, like one person to shift a culture, like, come on, you know, how fair is that? Uh, you're really setting up people to fail. And, and once again, it's just, it's a veneer. It's a veneer process. It's not real, you know? If I want something fake, I'll go to Ikea and get one of those <laughs> <laughs> cheap tables. <laughs> like, do you really want your your equity, diversity, inclusion to be kind of representative or, you know, like, like a like an mm-hmm. Ikea table? Like, just think of it that way. <laughs> do you want the Ikea table or do you really want solid oak that will stand the test of time? I you think. know, I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but now... <laughs> <laughs> but no, you're right. It's 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 very superficial, absolutely. And in terms of the optics to appear a certain way or to appear diverse, kind of makes me think of like the pamphlet for like a you know a company or an organization or the the website landing page to sort of have sort of visual illustrations of diversity. And I'm using air quotes as we talk now. Um, so yeah, very superficial, very IKEA. Yeah. I love Ikea. I love their Swedish meatballs. No, <laughs> and they have some other great products too, you know, uh, but uh, no, but yeah, it hopefully it illustrates a good analogy, right? Mm-hmm, to hopefully mm-hmm. illustrate the point that we're trying to make. But mm-hmm. what, Katie, can you shed light on then what really is diversity hiring? Yeah, so I think we touched on a bit of it, but let me just go through some of the points. So that's uh, diversity hiring when it's a diversity hire, it's often done with the wrong intentions. So again, hiring perhaps a a woman, for example, just to fill a quota. So there's a, you know, a woman on the, on the team um, or hiring minorities just to make ourselves seem more diverse, which can do so much more harm than good. So keep in mind, sometimes being the only person from a minority background is a sign of tokenism, uh, as briefly mentioned before. And sometimes it's just a sign that the company is beginning to take diversity efforts on the flip side. So also just because there might be one diverse person, uh, it might not be that they're doing it superficially. It might be that they're just starting that journey of doing much deeper uh, diversity work. So keep it in mind, but it can be, uh, regardless, a, a challenge for someone who feels tokenized. So it can feel like they're responsible for representing their entire group. So for example, if I'm the only woman on a board and then I'm turned to constantly, Katie, what do you think from a woman's experience? Uh, and while I can share my own experience, I, I certainly can't speak on behalf of all women uh, and, and further layers of, of diversity. So I'm not a woman of color. I'm not, a, you know, a, a, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many dimensions to that. So so that's, that's a big piece to consider and that can have an impact on mental health and a person's sense of belonging. It really can suffer and lead folks to leave a team, like you said, walk away uh, and sort of vote with their feet. Was that the term? 
vote with their feet. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I love it. It was somebody yeah. I was coaching that said that. I'm like, oh, can I use yeah. that? Yeah, it was yeah. a great expression. Yeah. Yeah. And the article even gave a little stat that employees of color are three times more likely to leave their jobs because of unfair treatment. So, I mean, that, that kind of speaks to that really, really strongly. I also wanted to share, so hiring just to fill diversity quotas will only reinforce the idea that a woman, for example, or any other oppressed demographics, markability lie not in their ability, but their ability to fill a quota. So it's our responsibility to make sure that employees uh, and their coworkers, teams, organizations know that they're valued. They're all valued for their abilities, not just their ability to fill a quota. Um and there needs to be supportive and inclusive cultures to support that, which I know we'll get into a, a little bit later in this episode. But but that that really covers the diversity higher and the dangers of just throwing a diverse person into a team and calling it a day. Right. I also think like although diversity hiring seems like a longer term, more inclusive practice that's trying to truly shift, you know, the processes in place an organization have that might not be very equitable, which is great. But with that said, sometimes I feel like it's a good start, right? You're starting mm-hmm. out like, you know, the you're at the starting line of a, of a race and the starting gun goes off and off you go and, and you're starting off really strong and super fast and you're ahead of the pack and then something happens and you lose steam and then you come in last because you didn't think beyond the first hundred meters of the race. Mm-hmm. You didn't think about, well, once we meet our quota, maybe through a, a more equitable recruitment process, well, then what do we do to ensure that the culture then is really conducive and welcoming? And I'd like to give an example, if that's okay. Please, um, yeah. In season one of Tackle Tuesday, uh, I had interviewed someone for the Edmonton Police Service, and we were talking about this very thing, diversity hiring. And so they wanted to increase the number of diver- diversity hires within the Edmonton Police Service, and I think it was about by 25%. So that's a lofty, big goal. And they realized that there was a lot of people from underrepresented populations that did not even want to consider joining the police service because of uh, some of the mindsets, beliefs, stereotypes, and biases that they had about policing. And a lot of it was entrenched in where they came from, the countries that they came from and and the corrupt police organizations that kind of ran the cities and the towns and the communities that they lived in. And so they realized that in order to break that cycle or that mindset belief system, they had to go into these communities and build relationships with them and even give them access to people within the Edmonton Police Service, like pairing pairing them up with mentors so that they could develop rapport and relationship with police officers and start to be able to see themselves within the organization. And that was phenomenal. Isn't that that's amazing. To me, that is like the your your you're running this race and you're starting off that race super strong and you're ahead of the pack than probably a lot of other police organizations. But then what happens when you've hired them and they start going through recruit training, then they go through the PTO phase, which is police training officer phase, right? Which is where they get paired up with their mentor so they can start applying the things that they learned in recruit training in a safe way. Like what happens to them? during those processes. Because a lot of the stuff that I hear is recruit training is very command and control. Do as I say. It's meant to break people down. And I'm not speaking to Edmonton Police Service specifically. I don't know what the recruitment, the recruit training process looks like. I don't know what the PTO, Police Training Officer Mentorship Program consists of, right? That's the field training part of it. I don't know. But these are questions that they should be asking themselves. Not only asking themselves, but getting feedback from the people that they've hired going through the process to find out what is the culture like? Is it supporting you? And how many of the people that they've hired 
are they leaving or are they staying? Can they, are they retaining these people? Because if you're going to check, if you're going to report on the stat of how many people you've hired, because I believe they met that quota of 25%, how long have those people stayed in the organization? Are they staying all the way till retirement or are they voting with their feet? So I challenge organizations to say, don't only focus on the first 100 to 200 meters of the race. Like think of it as a marathon you want to keep them there for the long haul. So what are you doing to ensure that people have the strength, the stamina, the endurance to stay in the organization for the long haul? Uh, how is the culture creating that sense of psychological safety so people want to stay there? Ooh, that's really, really good. Yeah, thanks for that. I think that example is really good. I think those sort of questions are important. And that makes me think of something I just saw this morning, actually. And it was talking about how a lot of organizations tend to focus quite a bit on exit interviews. So like, ah, okay, maybe we have a retention issue or people are leaving. We got to schedule exit interviews and get data there, which there's nothing wrong with exit interviews. That is a great practice. But why wait until you have people who've told you they're leaving to really put the energy, the resources, the HR people power towards that? Like, why are we not having conversations right when we hire people and throughout the time with an organization to do what you just said, to really understand how their experience uh, is actually going? So I think that's really important. Yeah. Oh, God. Let's, let's be honest. How many, how many organizations do exit interviews consistently? Even that. Oh, my gosh. And that's the thing. I think then often it's a goal of like, we really got to, you know pick up and really make sure those exit interviews are a priority. But there's so much before that with people who are actually on your team and haven't decided to leave yet. So it is kind of interesting. Right. Yeah. Right. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So with that, maybe I'll just do a quick summary. I think you touched a lot uh, on a lot of the points, but just to really make sure folks are clear on diversity hiring. So it really is the development and implementation of a strategy that corrects for bias while attracting retaining uh, qualified candidates. So it requires an element of that ongoing support where psychological safety is fostered, it's checked in, and it's maintained. So I think the example you gave earlier was great. I was also doing some Googling just to see what some current practices look like around this. So uh, I found one Pinterest, the company Pinterest a number of years ago, um, the internet told me they were one of the first companies to get annual public hiring goals out there. And some of the ways that they uh, encompassed a diversity hiring strategy was to expand the universities that they recruit from. And they said they launched an internship program <clears throat> for freshmen and sophomore students from underrepresented backgrounds. And they had every employee participate in training to prevent unconscious bias. Uh, and then also created a training and a mentorship program specifically for black uh, engineer students. So that was a, a specific group that they, they identified to, to develop some additional support. So like that's a pretty robust approach that's not just like we, you know, recruit, we, have a, we recruit diverse people statement on our job postings. Like this kind of does a bit more than that. So I thought that example illustrated it nicely. Oh, that's an awesome example. Yeah, yeah. And so just remember, and we, we touched on this a bit uh, in a bit more detail in the previous episode, part one, but our implicit biases do affect how we recruit, promote diverse talent within our teams. Uh, we all have those biases. So having these sort of strategies in the way I just described can really make sure we're being thoughtful about our approach. And um, there's also a space for uh, metrics and measurement. So just consider that, like, how will you capture progress and uh there's a difference that lies in the intention of a, a culture of support, but that also is trying to measure progress versus just, you know, a quota of check marks and then boom, we're done. So just keep that in mind. And remembering, as we said, it's a, a marathon, not a sprint, making some of these changes. With this in mind, I think we'll move on to our final section of the episode and reflect on some, some questions and some calls to action. 
All right. So I have three questions for you to reflect on that can also be seen as a call to action, if you will, to help you figure, to help you, I guess, figure out how to, what are some of the things that you can do within your organization, within your team, based on the concepts that we've discussed? How can you implement that going forward? So the first question is, what are you doing at your organization or within your team to create an inclusive culture that embraces psychological safety? If you value diversity at the table, how are you conveying that? How are you ensuring it is not burdensome or perceived as tokenism? So that's the first question to reflect upon. The next one is what input do you actually have in hiring and recruitment process? How can you make people feel included and safe once they are onboarded beyond that recruitment process, like once they're hired? A lot of us don't put enough effort into creating a good onboarding program. Even managers need to be onboarded. Right? Just because I'm a manager and I have a lot of experience, it doesn't mean that you can put me at my desk, give me a 100-page onboarding document or folder and say, have at her. Right? It's It's... Make sure that people are feeling connected, that they can speak to people to understand, learn more about the culture, that they, someone's sharing what the policies and processes are, right? So think about that onboarding experience, not only for new hires uh, in terms of like at that front level, entry level, I should say, position, but even managers who are either being promoted to management or coming even from outside the organization. And the last question is, how do you measure whether you're successful at attaining inclusive team culture? So think about it. It's more than just stats, but maybe even asking your team periodically how they are doing. One way to easily do this is what Katie said, like the monthly check-in, where there are structured questions in terms of your team members or your direct reports giving you direct feedback. And it doesn't only have to be done at a one-on-one in a one-on-one, like you can actually implement that on a team level too, monthly or every two months or every quarter of the team meets. Like, why don't you have team members give each other feedback on how things are going at the team level? Okay. That's great. Thank you, Joanna. And, uh, you know, as you said that, I was thinking even those questions that you just shared, I mean, those could be discussed at a, at a team meeting just to even check in, like, how are we doing at embracing psychological safety? How are we conveying some of our value or priority around diversity? What does that look like? So I think individual how, reflection and with a team. Right. Like like if a new team member is going to join the team, why is it yeah. all on the manager to figure everything out? Why, why don't you meet with the team and say, hey, you know, we're going to be hiring somebody full of vacancy. You know, let's let's start talking about how we can make it more inclusive so I can inform HR so they can better support us. And then start thinking about how we're going to onboard this person mm-hmm. so that they feel like they're really, they really belong. Absolutely. And then uh, a final plug, if you didn't listen to the first part of this episode, I'd encourage you to go take a listen. But uh, if you did tune in, just think back even to those dimensions of our identity, because uh, as we've talked about, I mean, diversity is so much more than just gender or race. Like what kind of diverse perspectives or experiences are or are not on your team. And so that iceberg analogy, we often really just see uh, a few aspects of that, whereas there's lots of different diverse elements that can be so impactful and beneficial to a team in a, a company. 
So with that, uh, I think I'll, I'll wrap things up for us. I'll, I'll thank you for tuning in and I'll just share uh, that next month we're going to explore Responding to Challenges Part 1, which is going to look at conflict. So we've got another Part 1, Part 2, so we can really unpack the idea of responding to challenges. We're excited to jump into that. Uh, and again, thanks for joining us for this month's episode and we look forward to tackling the next topic with you. you.